Welcome to Lucky Boys Podcast. I'm Will. And I'm Norm, and we have a very special guest here today, Christopher Marte. Welcome. Hey, what's up? Hey, guys. Thank, thank you for having me on. Now, you're running for city council. Uh, elections coming up on June 22nd. Yeah. Uh, New York City, District 1. Can you tell us what is District 1? What's the territory? It's a really complicated district, but the easiest way to explain it is everything south of Houston Street plus Greenwich Village. So that's Soho, NoHo, Tribeca, Barry Park City, Chinatown, Lower East Side, Seaport, um, even like Governor's Island and the Statue of Liberty. Oh, wow. Yeah. Governor's Island and the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Did you know it extended that far? I didn't. I thought it just ended at Tribeca. (laughs) Honestly, I didn't know it crossed some rivers. So the city council, it's its own body. So you could think about it as Congress, right? Uh, And the president is the executive branch and the legislative branch. So it's similar in in the city. You know, the council, it's its own legislative branch. The mayor is executive. But the city council member also has a lot of um, influence over their district. So they have their own budget. They have their own staff. Mm. They do their own constituent services as well. And throughout Unic, uh, New York City, there's about 51 city council members. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so it's kind of like a checks and balances. So you guys work together then, I guess, as a peer with the, of, uh, among your peers with the mayor to plan for your district. Yeah, and sometimes that's planning in partnership with the mayor. Sometimes that's keeping them accountable to our, the people in my district. So it's kind of like a love and hate pushback. We do know that the mayor race is coming up. Yeah. And this, what this dirt? The playing field is so wide. I mean, I, I don't, I don't remember a time where this many hats has been thrown in the ring. I think there's about forty candidates, <laughs> close to it. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. It is crazy. Why are the numbers so high this time around? You know, I think it's two things. I think how bad our mayor is now, De Blasio, that everyone's like. If he can get elected, I can get elected. You know what I, I mean? I can't do worse. <laughs> and I think there's a there's like politics all around us. And for people who probably wouldn't never even thought about running for office, they're like something needs to happen, uh, or I need to be part of it to create change. So I mm-hmm. think it's seeing how bad the current uh, mayor is, and plus everyone just saying this is our moment. We have to change our city. Maybe a couple from the playing field that you would love to work with. It's, it's hard to tell right now just because it's even though it's only five to six months away, like a lot of candidates are fairly new to the city, to the people, even to myself, someone who's been in politics for five or six years. Right. Like, I don't know what Andrew Yang wants the city to be. I don't know what Maya Wiley wants to do. Um, there are some figures that have been there for a long time, like Scott and Eric Adams. Right. People mm-hmm. know them. They've had citywide or borough-wide offices, and you could be like, I know what they're going to try to tackle, but there's so many new faces with a, not really uh, a public platform yet of like where they're going to stand on issues that I think is too early to choose favorites because uh, you don't want to you know, have to defend them once something happens along the, you know, along the campaign trail. Right. You want to know what they stand for. Exactly. That's, that's uh, completely understandable. Yeah. Uh, now, I think one of the major issues that need to be tackled is one that's right in front of us, because what I'm constantly seeing since this whole pandemic um, has occurred over the last years, that crime rate is up, mm-hmm. especially in the area where we grew up, yeah. uh, Lower East Side specifically. Um, I mean, it is rampant. I'm, 
I mean, just last week someone got shot. Yeah. Uh, just a few days ago, uh, a group of uh, kids punched a random person in the mouth and broke his jaw and and robbed them. Uh, and, and you see things like this happening to the elderly, to to kids. I mean, it just anyone can be a target. Yeah. I mean, what's going on? You know, we're we're in a pandemic, right? And a lot of people are suffering, right? There's a lot of food insecurity. There's a lot of financial insecurity. There's a lot of health insecurity. So I'll start with that. Second is just like people aren't outside, right? Let's think about this area pre-pandemic. There'll be crowded streets, small businesses open 24-7. You know, there was a kind of sense of security. But now when the city pretty much shuts down at 7 p.m., 8 p.m., and you don't see anyone in the streets, I think it creates this sense of fear. Um, And so, you know, hopefully when we get out of this and people are willing to be outside, when we can reinvest in our small businesses, when people go out to restaurants, uh, that liveliness and that light diminishes the crime that's been going around in the community. I'm not sure that if things will go back to normal anytime Mm -hmm. soon. Therefore, I mean, if, if... Momentum continues to carry on with the crime rate increasing in this neighborhood uh, and across other neighborhoods in New York City, not just yeah. here. Uh, I, I just don't see that as an acceptable way of leadership to say that, well, we have to wait until the pandemic is over and hope that the crime will be reduced. And, and I think it's not only hoping, but there's a lot of things we can do now, right? We could make sure that People have, like, let's say basic necessities, right? People have food on the table. People have money coming in, whether that's through a stimulus package, making sure that our small businesses survive, you know, making sure that we're talking with the precincts to make sure that are these isolated incidents? Are these connected incidents? What's the main driver of these incidents, right? Is it financial insecurity? Is it because we don't have a lot of our nonprofits open? And so people that would have gotten social services or, you know, care to address mental illness are being addressed. Um, and so I think there's going to have to be a lot of communications, bringing one and everyone on the table and say, what is the root of the issue? Um, because we didn't see this before the pandemic when everything was open. So why now? And I think once we could figure out where the root of the issue is coming from, then we could tackle it. You know, locally, we could think of a few nonprofits, let's say University Settlement, Henry Street Settlement, I went to both as a kid. Uh, yeah, Chinese yeah. Planning Council. Power Remission. Exactly. Yeah. Like all these organizations used to serve thousands of people in this community. Bowery Mission is a perfect example. They used to take in almost 300 homeless people a night so they could sleep in there. Now they had to shut, uh, shut that down and no one's staying there. And then, so you see a homeless population increase just because they don't have a place to sleep. And so it's really hard to kind of, because we're still in the peak of it, it's hard to really figure out if this is just that crime is going up, right? And people are just taking advantage of the moment or are there deep-rooted causes that's leading to the crime. Mm. Uh, but I think what we can do now, especially hopefully as an elected official, is like, let's try to mig- mitigate what we can control. We know when there aren't small businesses, people feel less safe. It's much darker. It might create a situation where something can happen. Let's take care of that. Let's make sure that people bring food, uh, got, could bring food home. And, you know, my campaign, we've been delivering food meals to families all across the district, especially to seniors, uh, making sure that people have like PPE so they don't have to spend the money that 
would go to food, would go to something on mass hand sanitizer or face shields, right? And so what we can do is make sure that people stay safe, they have what they need, so they don't even have the chance to think about doing something in desperation. Now, that's one segment of it. Mm-hmm. Another segment, some would say, is that gangs are becoming more prevalent in the area where you're seeing, now it's not a one-on-one mm-hmm. type of robbery or crime occurring. Yeah. It's a five-on-one, it's a 10-on-one. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a mob yeah. versus one person. Um, I mean, what do we do about that then? Because you know, certainly that a, a mob robbing one person is not thinking about the financial um, results yeah. of the robbery. Uh, they're just looking for something to do yeah. uh, because they can get away with it. Exactly. They're taking advantage of the moment, right? Um, you know, they're an organization, right? Gangs are pretty much like well-functioning organizations. And when they see a moment to strike and be lucrative and and this is it, right? Like things aren't, you know, there's a lot of people that are desperate. Mm-hmm. And so let's say if there was a gang, perfect time for recruitment, perfect time to make sure that you could be like, we got you, we could bring money to you, we can help you. And we saw it when we were growing up in the Lower East Side, right? Like that was like the prime situation in the, let's say, late 80s, early 90s. And, and they know that, you know, no one's watching. And so if you look at it from that perspective, like this is like, their opportunity to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. So why do you think they feel that they can be so bold, uh, whereas before they couldn't? Is think, it because of the police, what's, with everything that's going on with the police now, uh, could have some contribution to that? I think that's part of the problem, part of the, you know, the, the root of why they're probably doing this. You know, I think police have taken a step back uh, at least in my opinion, especially after the the process over the summer, you know, they're much more um, cognitive of what they do and how they react to people. And I think politically, they're taking a step back so people could say, we need them, you know. Um, you know, we saw when they endorsed D- Donald Trump, right? Like, who would have thought that the NYPD would be able to endorse someone that kind of is that doesn't have the values of the city, no matter what type of uniform you wear, right? Um, and so I'm sure it's a mix of it. And I'm sure they're like, we could do this and no one's going to call the police on us and the police won't come just because of the environment we're in. So you think that it was purposely done on the police department for, to, you know, take a step back and not really, uh, what they're saying. Uh, some people are saying like, um, you know, less funding for the police or, uh, defund the police where, uh, the funds are not, uh, that are necessary to operate, uh, it's not given to the, the, the right personnel, the right amount of personnel that's on the streets right now. If you look at where the budget was cut, it wasn't cut for your beat officer, right? It was cut for safe sc- at school, you know, school guards. Uh, it was cut in administrative staff. And so I think there is kind of like a misconception. Like the police was not defunded by a billion dollars. If anything, the money was just shifted around and the cut was actually quite small and some people say they actually probably will get more money uh because even though they said they're not gonna allow overtime they have been allowing overtime and so i think it's kind of like the new york post controlling the narrative of saying that (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know oh this thing happened over the summer now let's press right this is our moment and so i think it i don't think it's a funding issue i think it's a 
a narrative issue that people are just trying to take take advantage of the moment i mean there's there's a there's a lot got to be a lot of reasons for the increase in crime you know increase in homelessness um and especially um to certain communities as well yeah uh, we've, we've seen that during the pandemic a lot of um, the aggression, a lot of the attacks were towards the Asian community, yeah. uh, specifically in communities like Chinatown. What, what do you think that uh, the pandemic has a lot to do with that? Or is it just the lack of resources put into those communities? And maybe, you know, it's just that, you know, Chinatown doesn't matter to, to, the, to the elected. You know, I think there was a huge uh, sense of xenophobia, mm-hmm. um, especially when you have a president calling it the China virus, right? And all the misinformation that's been happening along social media, um, the news, you know, if you only get your news from Fox News and if you only follow Trump on Twitter, then you probably think the virus came from Chinatown. Right. Mm. And you're like, wow. And even when we're out there handing out flyers and talking to people, it's just outstanding what people are absorbing from these news outlets and how they're communicating it. And so I think there, I think one of the main reasons of attacks on Asian Americans, especially our seniors, is because people have been brainwashed to think that they're the cause of the of of what we're going through, um, and what we have to do as activists and hopefully as elected officials and be like, no, like viruses come, pandemics happen, right? The Spanish flu happened. You know, we've almost dealt with an Ebola crisis a few years ago, um, and this. It, no one culture, identity, ethnicity is the root of this. And so we have to start there. But then we also have to understand as, you know, working with our local precincts, saying that this area will probably be a high targeted area because of that misinformation. Mm-hmm. And so whether that's working with the fifth precinct, which is the local precinct in Chinatown and say, hey, guys, like we know what's happening. We got to make sure that this doesn't happen in this community and whatever we can do uh, to prevent that should happen now i've seen you um and some those of you listening may not know this but a photo of you actually uh which i thought was very powerful it was uh, it looked like it was during a protest and i see you with a bunch of uh people in chinatown beside you and behind you guys rallying and i believe that was uh because of the mega jail that they want to build right by columbus park yeah uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and what and what has happened since? Yeah, so two years ago, our mayor announced that he wanted to build the world's tallest jail in Chinatown. Um, and our council member said it was the done deal. There was nothing we can do about it. And so I organized the community to create a neighborhood organization called Neighbors United Below Canal. And our first job was to make sure that we educated people on the process of this potential jail happening. And through educating through that process, making sure that people were coming to town halls, going to community board meetings, going to city council hearings, we realized that the city was conducting this process illegally. And so once they decided to vote on building these jails, which the city council and the mayor approved, uh, we filed a lawsuit stating that the city illegally conducted their own Euler process. And the Euler process is a process that they use for any type of developments especially ones that are out of scale. Um, And so we filed a lawsuit, and a few months back, uh, the judge ruled in our favor and said the city did do this illegally, and they have to go back to the drawing board. Uh, The city appealed that decision, uh, but looking at the appeal and talking to our lawyers, um, they feel really positive that we're going to win this. 
uh, which is huge, right? And if you think about it in a historical context, the tombs right now in Chinatown was built because 60 years ago, there was a similar fight. The city wanted to build a big jail down in Chinatown. And even though the community organized and pushed back on it, the city won. And so this could be the first time that we organize the community um, and not just in Chinatown, but Tribeca, Lower East Side, coming all together and saying, no, we don't want this in our neighborhood. And I think we're, we're going to win this one. Why do you feel confident that we're going to win this one? You know, what we've seen, especially when, it, when you're fighting the city, that if you win in the courtroom, you, you, you have a shot of winning the whole battle. Uh, you, we tried battling them through the community board, which we won. We got everyone in the community board to vote in favor of the community. We tried getting the borough president to take our side. She didn't. She sided with the mayor. We tried getting our council member to take our side. She she didn't come to our side. She took the side of the mayor. The current council member in District 1? Yeah. And, uh, and then we tried city planning. We tried uh, the mayor himself. Um, and we were going to lose if it wasn't for this court case. Uh, but, you know, we had a really good team that we were able to build over two years. Luckily, found really good lawyers who wanted to take this and take a risk, right? Like a lot of these lawyers work for the city and they don't want to jeopardize their relationship by going against them, especially such a big project. This was going to be a $9 billion project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, at one point we didn't know how successful we will be, but we knew we had to do something to protect our community and to show that building new jails, especially massive jails, aren't the way of criminal justice reform. Now, why would the mayor, along with the city council and those involved, want to sign off on this, building a mega jail, an absolute eyesore in a residential community where there's a humongous children's playground right across the street? Why, why would they okay that? I, I, I'm having a hard time digesting that, and so is everyone else that lives in the community. But I, I don't live in the community anymore, but just from the outside looking in, it, it's bizarre. Yeah. It's a bizarre place to put a jail. Yeah, and you know, the narrative at first, they're saying, we're gonna close Rikers Island, and the only way we can close Rikers Island if we build these four new jails. Uh, however, we, we, we pushed back, and at first they didn't even make a, a legal commitment to close Rikers Island until we push back. And so now they made a bi- legally binding commitment. But we still push back. We said, you can't conduct this process illegally and try to get, w- get away with it by building this jail. And I think going to your question of why would they do that, because I don't think they care that much. Um, if you look at development all throughout Manhattan, it's done at will, it's done as of right. A lot of it is done illegally, but is because we have a lot of special interests and because the real estate industry has so much influence in our city politics that they get away with it. For example, the building um, Extel Tower near the Manhattan Bridge. You know, when you're coming over the Manhattan Bridge, you see this tall glass building. The same thing. Is right? the blue one? The blue uh, glass building? Yeah. Um, the same thing, right? Why is that tower there? Why is it next to NYCHA housing, Section 8 housing? Um, why did they destroy an affordable grocery store, the Pathmark, to build oh, that's this? That's a damn shame, yeah. Yeah, to build this luxury towers because they have the influence. And, and I hear that that tower is actually not doing so well. Yeah. Um, no. There's some issues with the infrastructure. Some apartments are crooked. Um, and, you know, that's all I hear people in the neighborhood, how they miss 
having a supermarket there. Yeah. And uh, that was just a, such a huge landmark, an important landmark for everyone residing in that area. Um, now, you, you speak of special interest. And the first thing I, I start thinking about is like, wait, so you want to build a mega jail at, at the expense of the community so that the developers can make money? And who else is getting money? So the people signing the checks, that has what's in it for them? Then, I it, it, it just can't be they don't care. They, there's got. I understand there's something in for the developers, but what's in it for the people allowing this construction to go on? So it's not only real estate. Like the, you know, the criminal justice industrial complex is a lot of money. Like my brother who runs Combody, he been to these conferences where. They're trying to sell you mattresses. They're trying to sell you bunk beds. It's like there's so much money when it comes to jails and prison uh, nationally that all of those are special interests as well, right? And one of the things when it comes to real estate is not just building this jail, but that building that structure will compromise the historic nature of Chinatown. When you go to Chinatown now, you see that buildings are eight, six to eight story high, but if you have something that's 35, 45, any other developer is going to be like, we want to build the same height to that building. Uh, they can do that? They can take the air rights? Yeah. Yeah. And right now, one of the things we've been fighting in this campaign is to implement a community-based zoning policy called the Chinatown Working Group Plan, which will put height limitations on any new, new development. But right now, everything is almost as of right. So are the politicians making money? Like, hey, you sign off on this... I mean, that's highly illegal, but will they find clever ways, like some funny accounting where they can get a kickback or some, something where I can purchase something from this, from your company, this, or I need a certain type of uh, hardware from your company and my company will buy from your company kind of deal. Is that what's going on? I don't think it's like that. I think is a lot of people are running for reelection, running for higher office, you know, money talks when it comes to donations, right? If you look at 2013, um, and so there's this thing called independent expenditures, when people create kind of these organizations to spend money on the behalf of a candidate. Um, the Real Estate Board of New York almost spent a quarter million dollars on our council district trying to elect someone. And so when you look at, if you, look, if you connect the dots, why would they want to spend a quarter million dollars to run someone on a county district, right? This isn't a congressional race. This isn't a, you know, a race to, to go to Congress, right? Mm. Um, it's because they know how valuable it can be by electing the right person that's going to approve a lot of their real estate transactions. That's interesting. Yeah. So they're basically setting it up for their next step in office. Yeah, and sometimes, or sometimes they, sometimes that's not the reason why they got into office, right? There's some politicians that care about three or four issues, right? Whether it's like, I want to support child care, I want to uh, do, you know, social justice initiatives, right? And so they don't even think about real estate, right? And so real estate is the last thing that um they want to fight for and so they're like whatever new york city is going to build just let them build right mm -hmm. like as long as i get xyz accomplished during my term that's what i want um however i at least personally i think real estate is connected to a lot of what we go through 
like one of the things we were talking about was gentrification and displacement, right? The reason why gentrification and displacement happens in this neighborhood is because A, people know they could kick out a grandma, grandpa out of their apartment, flip it, uh, destroy their building, build a luxury condo. Mm -hmm. And, and when you start seeing that, you start connecting the dots of like, all right, why was this senior displaced? What was in it for the landlord? How much was the property taxes that they were paying? Um, and then once you start seeing like, even along the Bowery where, where we all grew up, there's like four new luxury hotels. Like, why do we need that? But you start connecting the dots of what that used to be a tenement building. Where did all those tenants go, right? Yeah. And you just see who has the most influence over development in our district, and that's the council office. Displacement and gentrification is very personal. I mean, to me, personally, because I, I still have my parents. They live in the Lower East Side mm-hmm. on the land sea. And, you know, I'm, I'm worried for them when the time comes when the landlord decides to sell his building or, um, you know, decides to uh, try to kick out the residents who have been there for 30, 40 years. Um, and I just, um, I think I read something where a majority of the money that the city makes is from property taxes. Yeah. And a lot of people are moving out. Um, so they're losing, a lot of commercial buildings are not, are not paying, you know, rent, you know. So the city is losing a lot of money. I by mean, the millions. Yeah, by the millions. Yeah. I mean, it, we, want, we want the city to thrive, but, you know, I, I don't want it to, it to come to the expense of the people who have made the city great, but... How is the city going to survive without the money? I think it's understanding. We're just talking about Lower Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when it, when you're talking about Chinatown, Lower, Lower East Side, Little Italy, tourism brings so much money. Mm-hmm. This one area brings, you know, when you have friends visiting you, they say, I want to go to Times Square. I want to go to Soho. I want to go to Chinatown. No one ever says, I want to go to, you know, Kew Gardens, Queens, right? <laughs> or like Soundview, Bronx, right? Yeah. And so you have to understand that. Well, okay. so shout out to some of you. My girlfriend's from there. So <laughs> shout right, out to Kew right. Gardens. <laughs> I used to live there too. So, yeah. um, But that's why I feel like we have to preserve this area. They come here for the unique ca- character, the culture, the diversity, uh, the lived experience. And so if you only allow uh, like real estate to drive our initiatives down here, that's going to be lost. Um, and we start already started seeing that, right? Like Essex Street Crossing, like all those buildings don't bring culture and character to Lower East Side. Not at all. If anything, it's an extension of Midtown. Right. Um, yeah. And so when you, and so like our plan, our vision in the council is to pass a zoning policy similar to the East Village. The East Village has extremely protective zoning, no height limitation, really good protection for tenants. You don't hear about people being evicted from the East Village, right? Mm-hmm. But you hear about people being evicted downtown and because we don't have that zoning in place. Uh, my cousins were displaced. I told you, my, I have a lot of kid, uh, people I went to school with who now live in Jersey, in, in far Brooklyn, uh, because they can't no longer live here. So for me, it's like we already have a plan in place we can mimic. We could protect these people. We could keep the culture alive. Um, and that's what I want to do. That sounds awesome. Um but you say some people come into politics or city council with good intentions yeah. and somehow because of their career uh, or uh, other reasons once they get in, uh, I guess their navigation journey gets rerouted and they end up serving masters in this sense, their interests. Mm-hmm. 
What's to stop you from becoming like that? I think from my experience uh, in politics already, I have taken extreme unpopular stances where people are like, Chris, why are you doing this? You're going to, you, your political career is dead. Uh, if you talk to a lot of politicians, I'm not a popular guy in their circles because I believe I stand up for what I believe in. For example, this jail fight, the city was behind it. The mayor was behind it. Borough president was behind it. I was the only person standing up in our community saying this wasn't right. And Wait, you were the only person standing up in the Chinatown community in politics saying that that's not right? Because yeah. I, I did see Tai Ma. He's an actor. Oh, yeah. The guy from and Mulan. He, he joined he our there. group. Jeff yeah. Lee. Yeah. I know Henry Lee. Yep. That's also there. And um, Jan Don, Lee. Jan, Don Jan Lee. Lee. Yep. Yep. A lot of Lees standing up. But, yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, shout out, really shout out to the Lees. Yeah, yeah, shout out to um, the Lees. And uh, Tai Ma, for you guys that don't know, he's the actor from, uh, he plays, uh, I guess the most recent one, he plays uh, Mulan's dad. Yeah. So, uh, so out of that playing field, it was the activists, the actors, the people in the community, and you, the single politician, or yeah. were there other politicians uh, fighting beside you? So the politicians that we needed on our side to actually fight for us weren't. Um, so that's like the council, the speaker. Um, even, you know, there's a lot of electeds that are just like, I'm going to stay out of this. And it's just like... The people running against you. Running against me, but then other politicians who are just like, that's not, that's not, I'm not going to get involved with that, right? And I think, you know, a lot of people are like, Chris, you're, you're done if you, you know. If you stand up against building this jail? Yeah. And I took a lot of heat, um, you know, lost a lot of relationships because people are like, Chris, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're going against the mayor, you're going against the city, you're going against all these people who want to close Rikers Island. Like, literally, they gave a false narrative to people that said, if we don't do this, we can't do this. And I was like, no, no, that's not how it should be. Um, and so you, we, I had a lot of people even who were part of the Closed Rikers movement, like coming after me. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are progressive social justice activists, right? Um, but at the end of the day, I was like, look, I went to Rikers a lot when my brother was there. I've been to a number of prisons upstate. I know we can't build new jails, especially when the city is not giving you any details, right? And I was like, you're just moving people from one cage to another. Like, you're not talking about the social programs that will go in there. Um, Like, even building, like, hospital units with these, like, um, potential jails and prison. Like, for example, me and my brother co-wrote an op-ed last year where we were like, the city should follow the model that L.A. County did. They took a billion dollars from Department of Correction and moved it to a Department of Hospitals. So then they could create hospitals that can address some of the mental illness um, that's so prevalent in, in our incarceration that's system. That's huge. Hmm. That's huge. I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. So so how did you make it? To, because I, I've spoken with people in this circle, mm-hmm. and they think you have a great chance of winning. Mm-hmm. They think you have a phenomenal chance of winning. Um, in fact, you're probably the favorite yeah. going into this. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. How did that happen if you have all these people against you? Like, how did you do that? <laughs> and it's because uh, I've been an, an, an activist. Um, you know, when I ran in 2017 against our council member, lost by 200 votes, just 1% of the turnout. But we never stopped. You know, a month after the primary, 
um, these tenants at 85 Bowery were being evicted by their slumlord. Uh, they called me right away. We went over. We organized the community to support them to two hunger strikes. So we had like 80-year-old uh, Chinese grandmas outside of depart- like city agencies going on hunger strikes. And I stood with them all along the way. And, and we were finally able to get them back home. Like in New York, you get evicted, you're probably not going back home. But after nine months, they were finally able to return. You know, the city wanted to build these four massive towers along the Two Bridges waterfront. We organized the community to file a lawsuit, and we stopped the construction. Same thing with the jail. No one thought it was possible that you can take on the mayor and win, and we were able to do that. And so we've been taking on all these little battles and never giving up and giving people an opportunity to say, we can actually change the, the neighborhood we live in. We can, you know, have our voices at the table. Uh, if not, we're going to push back. And so I've been really busy in the past three and a half years, really fighting for the community. And, and I feel like that's where my heart is, right? Like, especially when you see people getting involved that never gotten before because you took the time to tell them about what a community board is or what can a city council person do. And, and yeah, and so that's why, you know, when people are like, oh, Chris, what's going to happen when you get elected? Like, I'm still going to live in my neighborhood. Um, you know, my brother's still a small business owner here. Like, my friend runs LES, you know, down the, down the street. And and this is where I want to live for the rest of my life. You know, I, I, I was fortunate to travel abroad when I was young. But, like, this is where I want to live. This is where I want to grow a family because I want to preserve this area. I want to preserve this neighborhood. They halted the jail yeah. as of now. When will, I guess, the results of the case be finalized? So right now, um, we're going to, we just reply to the city's appeal. Um, and so they haven't set a, a date yet of when the judge is going to make a ruling on it. Uh, but I would say in the next few months, uh, probably three to four months. That close. Yeah. And once they make a decision there, we'll have closure on whether it is or isn't being built? It depends on the ruling. Uh, we can, you know, if it doesn't go in our favor, hopefully it doesn't, we can do an appeal ourselves, right? Um, and, you know, I think luckily for us, but not unlucky for everyone, we're in a completely different environment than we were when the city was trying to build these jails, right? I don't think the city can commit nine to $11 billion in creating this infrastructure, right? We have so much other places we have to invest money, create new jobs, you know, whether it's like protecting our shoreline or investing in our schools. There's a lot where those $9 billion that were probably going to be committed to the creation of four new jails could be used elsewhere. So you're saying that due to some budget cuts yeah. coming along the way that that's probably another reason why they won't build a jail, yeah, which kind of supports your positive outlook on it. Mm-hmm. So once they decide that, let's say in two or three months, you guys are back in the courtroom and they're saying it's that's it, we're not building it, can they rehash it when things normalize? They, they can, but they'll have to redo the whole process again. They'll have to start over from scratch with the new mayor, with the new city council. Exactly. At least for the jail here, because our lawsuit was solely based on the Manhattan jail. Uh, they probably won't have to redo the studies of the other three jails, there's going to be one in the Bronx, one in uh, Queens, and one in Brooklyn. And all of each, there's like neighborhood organizations that filed their own lawsuit 
that is yet to be determined of what those outcomes will be. But when it comes to this jail, uh, if we do win our lawsuit, they're going to have to restart this process again with a different council person, with a different mayor and in a different city situation. And hopefully they they decided this is too big of a fight and they have to go through the entire process again and decide to do it somewhere else yeah. in the hand. You didn't grow up in the Chinatown area. You grew up specifically on the other part of the Lower East Side, right? Where the most of the uh, uh, other Hispanics, you're Dominican, yeah, right? So you grew up in a predominantly Hispanic area. I, well, I grew up on Rivington and Forsyth. Okay. Um, so kind of Dominican, close to Little Italy, close to Chinatown, right? Literally right. two or three blocks north of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Orchard Street, we had used to have a lot of Orthodox Jewish people. I remember. You know, yeah. those leather jacket shops. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's, a, right. yeah. there's a small Bangla- Bangladesh community. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So really like a melting, a melting pot. pot. Yeah. And even within like Latinos, you had the Puerto Ricans, the Dominicans, right? It wasn't just like one nationality. I bet the people listening or watching this going, why does a Dominican guy care so much about Chinatown when other people who are Asian and in politics did not stand in the way of a mega jail? And we have this guy running for office and it, and what you're saying, it goes against your interests um, to stand up against these people that are currently signing off on it. Why does someone who is an Asian care about a Chinatown a mega jail being built there. I can't, you know, speak for them, but for me, Chinatown has deeply influenced my life. Like I lived in China for two years just because I was curious about the culture um, from growing up in a community so close near it. Right? Um, I like made life decisions based off my childhood experience of growing up in this neighborhood, and you know, and and so for me, I realized that. You know, whether you're Chinese, whether you're Bangladesh, whether you're Dominican, our families have the same stories, right? My my dad came here from DR, opened up a bodega. My mom was a garment worker in a sweatshop. Like, how many people have similar stories to that? You know, whether it's like a, right. a leather shop on Orchard Street, whether right. it's like a, a small boutique in Chinatown, right? Yeah. And so you stop looking at the ethnicities. You start looking at what people are going through as as humans, as workers, and that's where you build the bond, right? There's a lot of people that supported me in 2017 um, that looked past my nationality, right? We did well in areas like Tribeca, Soho, Noho, Chinatown, Little Italy, is because we were able to identify each other as residents of Lower Manhattan and not use cultural or ethnic barriers to say, I can't support you. You know, Dominicans are super minority when it comes to Lower Manhattan, especially in the voting population. And so to get, you know, almost a victory, um, it would be impossible if I didn't try to, like, build a coalition of neighbors, build a coalition of people who believe that this should be a diverse community. Yeah, I think that's one of the unique things and beauty about LES is that it's comprised of mostly immigrant families from all sorts of different cultures, Hispanics, Italians, Asians, uh, Jews. Uh, Middle Eastern. I mean, it is just, and we, when you all get together as kids and you start realizing like, oh, your mom does this, your dad does this, and we're all in the same income bracket. And your parents' story is my story. And it's similar, even though our culture is different, we do some things different, but we do a lot of things the same. Yeah. Uh, I've always found that so fascinating. And 
also that you mentioned you lived in China for two years. Yeah. Can you speak Mandarin? A little bit. How long did it take you to lost it already? <laughs> Wait. So when you went to when you went to China, you did you speak Mandarin already or none of it? Not nothing. So I went and I went for school. So I studied at Zhejiang Dashui in Hangzhou. Uh, lived there for lived in Hangzhou for almost a year and two months, uh, and then I went backpacking through most of China. You were probably the only Dominican there. Yeah, yeah. So in some <laughs> places, people were looking at me, and I had an afro. You know, I was kind of I was a college student at that time. I had like little kids come up to me and like just pull my hair and couldn't believe that, like the curliness. And yeah. so it was pretty funny. Why China? Yeah, a lot of it had to do with growing up here. You know, um, always going down to the parades. You know, lighting up the firecrackers as a kid. You know, there used to be markets. My dad, he always pick up groceries down on Grand Street. And my mom used to do Tai Chi out in Forsyth Park. Stop it! Really? Yeah, yeah, she'd be the only Dominican lady. Which, which park? Which park? Uh, Saturday Roosevelt oh, okay, Park. Yeah, it's, it's a soccer. soccer it's a soccer field yeah, now. Soccer yeah. Field. Yeah. yeah, but they all used to be out there. My mom used to join them, and so like it just had a huge like part of my mind and you know and who I was, and you know people never really knew. Like the Lower East Side is fairly big, right? You tell someone. You're from the Lower East Side. They might think you're from the Ave. You might think from like two bridges. Depends on your race. Yeah. yeah, right? yeah. When I tell people from LA, I say, oh, Chinatown, right? Yeah. Like, no, I actually don't. <laughs> and so when you, when you talk to people who don't know the Lower East Side, you're like, oh, I grew up two blocks of Chinatown. And then they're like, okay, I get it. Yeah. People um, don't know it's super close. Like you walk one block and you're probably in a different neighborhood. What was that like for you in, in China then? Did you feel any um, insecurity about the way you look? The way you stand out, um, uh, language barriers. Yeah, um, you know, especially when it, like the first three months when I didn't know how to even order food or water or anything, you you definitely feel out of place. Everyone's looking at you. Everyone's like trying to guess why you're there. Yeah, because I'm Chinese. Yeah, and I'm hesitant about going to China because of the language barrier. Yeah, so you know, luckily I grew up in a in a family that took things lightheartedly uh, and always with comedy. You know, my dad's always making jokes. Um, so when I went to China, that's how I just dealt with everything, right? Just like saying, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what I'm ordering. Like, let's just have fun. And, you know, I think people would enjoy it. Like, I have a lot of good stories of people just taking me in and showing me around. No, really? Yeah, yeah. So, like, random Chinese families took you in? Yeah, and they'd be like, or like, I'll meet someone playing basketball, and they're like, "Oh, you should come to my house. Let me show you around." Wow! And let me because eat. the narrative is, on, especially on so- social media, is that Chinese people hate blacks, dark-skinned people, just that, that that aren't, you know, you know, that's all you see. They're getting kicked out of the country mm-hmm. uh, just because of the way they look. And I don't know if that's true or untrue, but you just saying that contradicts all of what the news has been reporting during COVID. That's not how I saw it. When I was there, I was like the most popular person in China is Kobe Bryant. You know, if you look at, and you, you know, I met people playing basketball. They love Kobe there. in China. They love they Kobe. Love, he is the Jordan of China. Like, oh, wow. They love Kobe. Yeah. They got all the sneakers, everything. Yeah, huge fans. Yeah, and so, you know, I used to play basketball out there and that's how I made friends. That's how I build kind of like my community out there. And so like the people I met were super friendly, super supportive, uh, help me out when they didn't need to, and wow. yeah, never really felt like 
harsh prejudice in China. And like I travel a lot, like the north, the western part of China, and you know, and people were just always like they were interested. And wow! Like, sometimes it got annoying how interested people were. Wait, did you accept? Did you stay with them? Yeah, sometimes.、Um, You know, some, like you slept over, you stayed in their house, and yeah. Sometimes my like my friend, you know how in Chinese New Year everyone goes back to the village they're from or their、yes. family are from, and I have friends that are like, oh, what are you doing for Chinese New Year? And I was just like, oh, I'm just staying at the dorms. They're like, no, no, no one's going to be at the dorms, and they're like, come back with me and my family, and it was awesome, like to see and like spend spending like a week with a family and you know being treated like you're one of them. So you got to see the inside of how we really celebrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got the ten course meal. <laughs> you got the banquet. It was all day meal for me. Everyone just wants to feed you. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really awesome. Was there anything like a culture shock to you? Like, whoa, this is super weird, or wow? It was, uh, you know, the lines. Like, you know, when you're trying to buy a, a ticket for the the train station or anything, there's no sense of lines. Um, everyone is like rushing to get a ticket, and like everyone has elbows up, you know, going back and forth and trying to just like get through somewhere.、Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that was super weird because you know you're here and you're in the subway, you stand online, you wait your turn. Like when you go to any establishment, you wait your turn over there. It's just like. Whoever can get to the front is going to be in the front. No, it's a free for all. It's free for all. What is a、and、line? So, there,、oh、there, there is、gosh. no definition for a line. Exactly. So I'm just like standing there waiting my turn. I just see all these people just cutting in between, and I'm like, all right. After like a few months, I just learned I had to like use my height and my you know、uh, gotta my, body them, box yeah, them out. Exactly. <laughs> so, so people that may have some hesitancy or fear about going to China. What would you say to them if they're not Asian? Like because on the news, if I'm not Asian, I'm going, "Hey, you're going to be prejudiced towards me. I don't want to go where I'm not wanted and have a terrible time or get kicked out or have to fear for my life."、Uh, you have a completely different experience from that.、Uh, what would you say to them? It's kind of like similar to the United States. If you only listen to news about what's happening in America, you'd be like, "All right." I'm a black person. I'm never going to America because of what they do there. But when you go to New York City, when you go to like your, you know, where you live now, you don't feel that discrimination, right? And I think there's like a false narrative of what what's put out there externally and what you actually see when you're there. And I think that's the same thing about China. It's like, right? We we hear, oh, it's a communist country. Oh, they do things differently. But once you're in a, you know, once you're in the city, once you're in a small village, people are just people. You、right. know, they're, not, you、right. know, they're, their government、right. doesn't dictate like how they have a relationship with people. Interesting. Right. We're not talking about the politics of government or getting in. We're just talking about the people, the citizens, and going there as a tourist or a vacation or perhaps studying abroad, which you had a great experience. I think you studied in, abroad in China too, right? I、Mark? did. I studied in Beijing. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So how I, was that? It was fun. I mean, like、For、I got to Chinese person in China. Well, I mean, like <laughs> I, I actually experienced the same thing. Like people who were not, I, I guess, ethnically ethnically Chinese, they're they're celebrated as almost like celebrities. No so, way, really? No, yeah, so, so you too? So yeah, I was.、Uh, I don't want to say I was. You were like a rock star there? No, no, no. I'm, I no. I look Chinese, so I'm not a rock star. Oh, oh, oh. Non, non Chinese looking people. Yeah, but, but you're. But they could tell you're American by the way you dress and、yes, carry yourself. Yes, they、right? they could tell. But then, I mean, even even if、uh, like for example, 
they were hiring people to teach their kids like English, but they wouldn't ask me to teach them English because the way I look. They would go to like a uh, a person who's like Russian who has the worst accent, <laughs> oh. and they would hire them to teach them English. Oh. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? So. I mean, I had a lot of fun. I met, you know, just just understand my culture, and I I didn't grow up learning uh, Mandarin, mm-hmm. speaking Mandarin. So, I that, it was a it was a whole new, it was a culture shock for me as well. You know, yeah. coming from I mean, living in Chinatown, but also learning a, a, a whole new language. Uh, you know, and experiencing it for for the very first time. I mean, I've I've been to China when I was younger, but not to Beijing, the capital. Yeah. So totally different experience. Um, it was. It was eye-opening, a culture shock, and I, I don't know. I, but the thing is, like, just experiencing new cultures is what is so beautiful about, I mean, the world in general, right? We have those experiences, and and taking that leap, I think people um, have to understand when they look at differences between people and between uh, communities and cultures. I think there's more that connects us than divides us. Exactly. And, Absolutely. And the only thing you have to do is take that leap of faith. You know. Two years by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So you still talk to the people that you met there? A few people. One of my professors there, uh, Lu Wei, he's awesome. He always hits me up on Facebook Messenger. Um, And I always like have try to have a Zoom call with him at least once a year just to see how life is. And and so, yeah, so like someone like him, it's kind of like a life bond, right? Like what, 10 years later, I'm still in touch with him. So Wow, that's amazing. Did you keep in touch with anyone, Norm? No, this was pre-Facebook, so I didn't keep Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You're so aging you- yourself. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, showing your age. Yeah, yeah, I am. All right, so let's get back to the politics of things. Cool. New York City. You're against condo development that's monstrosities, that's yeah. just ODing on air rights. Yeah. Correct. Okay, we know where you stand there. Um, against jails. Yeah. Mega jails. Okay. Boom. Crime rate. We want to reduce it. Yeah. We want to identify what's going on, and but first we want to identify what's going on, and then come up with an action plan. Yeah. Okay. So, New York City right now. I mean, it's. I mean, like you said, it's. It's somewhat deserted during certain hours. I was actually a little surprised on my way here. It's like holy crap! It's packed. Yeah. There is a humongous line for this Korean hot dog place downstairs. Humongous line. Um, and the bars, you know, it's 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 kind of popping out here, LES, like usual, right? And it's it's pretty cold out today, yeah. Uh, to my surprise, but uh, nothing to what it was before because I I was expecting to just very quiet street walking down. But that's all said. Do you think New York City will make a full recovery? Yeah, I I don't think it'll be the same, and I don't think it should be the same, right? Like, New York what do you mean you won't? It won't be the same. For example, 9-11, right? Uh, no one thought the financial district will recover from 9-11. You know, a lot of businesses left. But because, you know, through land use and through people saying, let's think about this neighborhood differently, it's now a residential neighborhood. They converted office spaces into housing. They built parks. And now you see families with like three-year-old kids. When we were growing up, the only reason you went to financial district was for jnr right or something like that music world (laughs) forgot about that um and so that's how we have to see this right it's not going to be the same but what can what can we do with Mm -hmm. what we have and you know i think 
people will come back, especially once the pandemic is over. I think tourism will come back, but what do they come back to? And I think that's what's that's what the mayor has to think of. That's what I have to think of specifically for my district. Um, where do we want to invest? Where do we want to preserve? So when people say, I want to go to New York City, but I specifically want to go back to Chinatown, go back to Lower East Side, make sure that, check out the art scene there, the art galleries, right? And so that's what you have to do. You have to preserve what you can, but you have to rethink things that probably aren't going to be the same. You know, a lot of things you say is like, it sounds extremely beautiful. Yeah. Especially to the people living in LES. Specifically in the areas that are heavily impacted. Um, June 22nd. Yeah. How do people go out to vote for you? Yeah. Vote in general. Yeah. So, you know, follow first, follow us on social media, Chris Marte NYC. Um, if you have any questions of where your polling location is, feel free to reach out to us. Our website is votemarte.com. Uh, if you know where to vote, just go there. There'll probably be absentee balloting as well. So if you want to register to get a ballot sent to your home, uh, we can help you with that process. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions about voting, definitely reach out because this is an important election, right? We're electing, Absolutely. We're electing the future of the city. Yeah. Uh, if you love this city, make sure you go out and vote for the mayor. But then also when you look at your ballot, look at the bottom line where there's the city council person because that person is going to transform your lived experience in your community. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you pretty much have a direct relationship. The city council person will have a direct relationship of how people will be living yeah. in New York City, in their community. Yeah. And, um, I mean, just going back, I'm sorry, just going back on the um, just the Chinatown community and, and um, some of the resources that have been kind of <clears throat> given to District 1. Chinatown was actually left out in certain uh, business loans, uh, small business loans that were given out to yeah. uh, different zip codes of the community. I believe it is the 10013. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was because uh, it's known as a wealthy zip code. Yeah. Meanwhile, that is a horrible way to look at it. If you said it, it's a melting pot, I mean, because one area of the street within that zip code, yes, it can absolutely be wealthy. You walk two, three minutes, and it's, the, it's a 180. And you should never do anything by zip codes, right? They're struggling minority-owned businesses throughout the city. You know, there could be even like a street vendor out in Tribeca or or Midtown in an area that makes a lot of money. Um, So the way the city did that, um, it's not only like racist, I think it's just like, it it doesn't make sense. And so fortunate for us, we had activists like Jan Lee who was on Twitter calling out all the elected officials, city agencies to say, why are you leaving out uh, some of these mom and pop shops? And I actually went to go visit them uh, during that week when when Jan started promoting them and making sure that they were being heard. And, and luckily, the city decided to change how they do, uh, you know, their disaster relief or like loan program to make sure that they had been incorporated but it's a citywide issue, right? Like that was one person that was advocating for this neighborhood. Like zip codes are not the right, it's not the smartest way to like distribute t- money. Especially in New York. Yeah. Because the, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not exclusive to 10013. Yeah. There's several other zip codes that are impacted where there's mom and pop shops residing in that area among the mix of wealthy businesses. Yeah. I mean, that's just the... Who's thinking of these things? It, it, it just seems to me that they're only looking at the surface and they need to drill down a bit further. Yeah. 
Yeah, just they're just looking at numbers. They're not looking at the people that are within these communities. And and, and they're not even asking the question. Mm-hmm. You know, if like small business services in the city should have been reaching out to people on the ground and saying, how do we best distribute this money? How do we make sure that, you know, going back to like the one of the early issues we were facing is whether some of these restaurants are going to have out, outdoor dining or not. Like they didn't reach out to small businesses to say, this is how it should be. This is how you can qualify. Oh, wait, you don't have any storefront. Like, let's find a way for you to have your business on the street. None of that happened. And I think it's just a lack of organizing, uh, a lack of like operational management that this mayor has shown for years. All right. So let's say you're a city council member and the mega jail came to your table. What would you have done? Oh, I would have said no way. Okay. High rise building would have came by your office and your desk. What would you have said? I would have said no way, you know, especially the type of developments that we've been fighting. What do they say? Hey, think about your reelection in two years. That's fine. Because a lot of the times they, people who are in office are always already working to the next election. So they only do what currently impacts them. I think if people, the people know my message, they know my platform, right? I ran four years ago. Um, I could have easily been like, oh, how do I win the next time? And I did the opposite. I was like, look, you talk to people, you educate them, you show them what we can accomplish. Like, that's my base, right? Like, if I win this election, I know why I won. I won because I was true to these people. I did not kiss up to elected officials. I did not talk to big donors. I did not talk to special interests. Like, this is a hard election cycle because we rejected all of that. And that's why we have to be outside in, like, 18-degree weather talking to people on the street. How do we say no to the developers? I mean, they own New York. They are powerful. They're a very powerful group, these developers. I think it's like... Millions, millions of dollars involved. They 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 have eight other candidates that they can fund in this race, right? But I think we're rooted in community. Um, but how do you say no to them once you're in office? That's what I'm saying. Like, How do you not fall for that temptation? I think, however, they try to sweeten the pot. I think it takes a lot of work, right? Like the only reason we have a shot now from rejecting all of real estate is because we've been on the ground and doing the work. Like if I'm a council member and I'm doing my job and I'm hosting town hall meetings, I'm at your block association meeting, I'm at your co-op meeting, I'm having Zoom with seniors, like they're all going to know me and they're all going to vote for me because they know I did the work along the way. It's when people stop doing the work and they look for shortcuts. And I think that's when you, they get, you know, these special interests to come and say, look, I'll, I'll give you $100,000. You don't need to do grassroots fundraising. Like if you look at our, my donor list, everyone's like almost everyone's from in district or like a college friend, right? If they're mm-hmm. not from in district. But that took a lot of work. That's telling people donate $10, $5. I had almost, I would say like 60 restaurant workers give me $10, $5. And that's meeting with them, telling them my vision. And that's where I got into this, right? I'm 31 years old. I'm young. I want to be the most energetic council person in the city. I want to make sure that everyone knows what we're doing. Um, I want to make sure that people have a say in what I'm doing. And so this is going to be like a group effort. And so if we fail as a group, you know, it's going to be hard, but we have an opportunity to do that. So I think it's safe to say that as, as if you're there, we won't be seeing any of these buildings or have concerns of uh, history repeating itself. Yeah, we're going to try to do whatever we can. 
okay, I'm gonna be watching you. You're gonna be watching. I'm sure there's gonna be thousands of people watching. And there's gonna you know, probably there's probably gonna be thousands more hoping that I fail, right? And perhaps. and you know, I think one of the, my inspiration is getting from my brother, right? Like when all everything was stacked against him, like he kept he put his head down, and just kept on doing the work, right? And making sure that your brother's an inspirational person. And the so we had with him was quite interesting. And so looking at where he was and staying committed to what he wanted to do, even though when it seemed impossible, like makes this seem like a piece of cake, right? Um, and, and that's why I'm so close with him because I know the journey he's going through, the lives he's changing and the positive influence he's doing by not taking shortcuts anymore. Um, and that's rooted in my mindset, right? I saw when my brother was taking shortcuts, when he wanted to get rich quick, when he was living this life of luxury and what, where did that leave him? It, lead, it led him to a really dark place. Mm. Um, and, and I grew up seeing that. Like we shared a bunk bed, right? Um, and seeing who he is now and what he's been able to do by not taking shortcuts is the same way I want to run my office. Now, besides halting uh, developers from getting their way, what else do you think needs to happen? I think we need to get more people involved in how we do city government. So one of the best examples is I want to have participatory budgeting. So each council person has its own budget. And this process will allow up to a million dollars to be voted on by the community for the community. So we'll ask anyone, whether you're an undocumented person, whether you're a child, to say, what do you want to see fixed? Playgrounds, sidewalks. Uh, right, because the playgrounds here are oof. <laughs> falling apart. Yeah, but this gives people an opportunity to say, "Oh, wait, a council person is asking me what I want to fix in my community, and then allowing me to have people vote on my idea on what to fix, and that money instantly being tra- transferred to be to work on that project." I think is going to change people's mentality of how they function with government. And so, if we could do that just on a budget level, because people always say money talks, right? We could show people that we're willing to give you my power to address your needs, no matter how small it is. Imagine when we start talking about other things in our community, like passing legislation to protect our waterfronts and making sure that we put funding towards that so Hurricane Sandy is not repeated, making sure that we put more protections for workers' rights because we've seen so many people not get paid for the work they've been doing. Uh, And so I'm going to try to make this as democratic as possible but i think a lot of the work i have to do is making sure that i show up and i'm ready to listen and get people to to get involved now you talk about funding right a lot of this funding for the communities it takes takes money yeah um and majority of the the money that flows into the cities through negotiations with like you know real estate uh, uh, other suppliers for the city you know how how do we know that um when when you're at the negotiation table, mm-hmm. are you are you gonna allow the the needs of the community um, take a back seat if the negotiations are good, right? For example, if 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 the businesses they come in and they tell you, okay, we're gonna give you a hundred million dollars f- to fund these community projects, but we want we want this to, this to happen and in exchange. That, for example, we want to build this fifty sixty story building, right, yeah. um, and we will. Put some affordable housing here. We'll pad you here. We'll build a park there. We'll build a couple of community gardens. So 
so for example in that case right let's say if someone wanted to build a 50-story building in this block and let's say you know my first thing would be like no you know and making sure that the community is present in those negotiations right talking to the community board saying all right it seems like they're going to be able to develop this what do we bring back 100 percent affordability affordable housing or making sure that the affordable housing that they propose matches the neighborhood right there's not like a you have to make $60,000 a year to live in this area, right? You, we need affordable housing that can match someone that's making $30,000 a year. And we can do that in a city council office. You, can, you could de- demand what percentage of AMI, the average medium income, uh, could li- they could build those apartments for. Uh, when it comes to schools, saying we need to build a, a new modern school. Right now, Exit Street Crossing was supposed to give us a school. Nothing has happened. Uh, NYU, when they're building, they're building this massive structure, they were supposed to give us a school. Nothing happened. And so is having a council person, once these deals are, are being negotiated, is making sure that they remain accountable uh, and deliver for the community. Uh, but I think we can only get to that point if you take a hard stance on these massive developments, right? Because if a developer comes in and says, oh, this council person is weak, uh, we could do whatever we want. We could build whatever we want. We don't have to give them, We'll give them crumbs. Then you're going to only get crumbs. If you could put zoning in place that says, if you want to build above 20 stories, you have to go through the process of negotiating with the community to get give stuff back to the community. Um, and that's the power in, in zoning. It gives you a seat in the table when it comes to these massive developments. So your, your, your position on... Um, zoning and land use, that's, that's high priority. That's, uh, that's my main power. You know, um, when it comes to the citywide budget, even though the council made a big fiasco, of, you know, the budget this time, I have very little say of what the details of that citywide budget. My local office budget, I have almost 100% say, unlike where, which nonprofits get funded, what capital projects get funded. But when you look at the power of land use, of saying yes and no on developments, and if it like fits on what your vision is for the district, that's my biggest influence. Like think about it when you, when you before the pandemic, when you took your children to school, when you left your doorfront to when you got you dropped them off, your whole experience from point A to point B is determined by the decision your council member made. Whether you're going to have a park, whether you're going to have a hospital, whether you're going to have a clinic whether you're going to have a small business or whether you're going to let a Walmart or a CVS come in. Like the reason why these offices have a certain size, certain depth is because those decisions happen through the land use process. Um, And I think it's super important uh, that people understand that that's your council person that influences that uh, because it's a huge, it's a huge power. Do you have any say with regard to parking? Street parking? Yes. Now, that's been one of the key issues. Uh, when I speak with people specifically, I spoke with Don Lee, who we both know. Yeah. He's a community activist who's done, uh, we both agree, he's done so much. And and he never looks for the credit. I mean, I've watched Don Lee during, and we were talking offline before, but I watched Don Lee um, during the whole uh, thing that's been going on with Asians getting harmed and an 89-year-old grandma getting burned. And Don Lee 
didn't take the front seat on it. He let the other folks drive, and 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 um, he only wanted to support. And when he did need to step up on the spotlight or in front of the stage, he did. And that's and I'm glad he did because if it wasn't for that, he never went into my radar. Because when I heard him speak, I just I was instantly uh, gravitated and inspired by him, mm-hmm. knowing that there's someone like him out there. And once we had him on a podcast, I had friends that called me up and said, you know Don Lee? I was like, well, I just met him <laughs> on the podcast, but yeah, I guess. And they said, man, he's done so many great things for my family. He took a court case and the lawyers, he was helping us uh, through it. Um, some of them lost, but they said, man, Don Lee's a great guy. And so many people vouched for him. Nothing but great things to say yeah. about Don. And one of the things uh, Don told me about was the parking in Chinatown. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, it stinks. For people that, I mean, you said you grew up two blocks away from Chinatown. So you had the, the opportunity to just walk or skip, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and within a minute or so, you're, you're there and you get to experience the culture. And you say part of the tourism, it, what brings in a lot of revenue for District 1 specifically yeah. is Little Italy slash Chinatown. Well, if you can't park anywhere in Little Italy or Chinatown, that'll turn so many people. I know when I meet up with my family to have them some on the weekends, yeah. right? In Chinatown, it, it's I, I dread it. Me and the rest of uh, my, my siblings, you know, yeah. or my relatives that's going, or my friends going. Oh man, parking's gonna be a bitch. Yeah, you know, uh, can there any? Is there anything that we can do about that? Yeah, it is, and I think most people don't understand. The dynamics Chinatown placed for people who decided to move to the suburbs, right? Like a lot of people come in specifically to hang out on the weekends in Chinatown, and that fuels that economy drastically, right? And there's a lot we can do, right? We can create whether it's more parking lots or you know some of those old school before, uh, especially in Soho, you will see a lot of these building parking lots. A lot of those building parking lots have been converted to luxury condos now. Uh, and so, yeah, we can definitely do something about that. How? Because there's very little space. I mean, when you want to build a jail, there's space, apparently. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but how would you do that? There's different ways. You can do underground parking. Like, for example, there's this, um, there's this lot on the South Street Seaport. Uh, it's a parking garage now. Um, someone wanted to Howard Hughes a mega developer wants to build a massive tower there the community came and pushed back against it and said you could create a multi-level parking lot here um, with facilities in the bottom and a park on top so you're not only you know creating parking you're creating a park and you're creating something that everyone agrees with right and I think that's how we have to think outside the box and when I told you before like things are going to look different coming out of this than it was in the past. And so it's figuring out creative ways, right? Yeah, but Seaport, it's, it's a hike, though. You park at Seaport yeah, yeah, but and you walk over to China, that's a hike. I think it's just a, a good example of like, what do we do with certain lots that are available now? What do we do with Park Row, which is completely empty all the time? Do we put kind of like a high line? Don Lee actually partnered up with an architect and wanted to create a high line over... Uh, park row and make the underneath kind of like a parking traffic area like okay. similar that's to a good the idea. west side similar to the west side that's that's not a terrible idea yeah and so why hasn't that been implemented i just i 
a lot of politics. Air rights. And <laughs> a lot of air rights. And also, it's Federal Plaza. Yeah. But, you know, I think, you know, especially after 9-11, they weren't going to, like, do anything in that area. But I think as time passes, and I think we're in this point now, we can say, what should we do with Park Row? Um, because it can also be uh, a way for tourists to come from the seaport to Chinatown yeah. or from Fidei to Chinatown. But it's not beautiful and it's confusing. You don't even know if you can walk down those that, mm. that that alleyway, right? And so this is why like I love land use and why zoning. And even though it might sound boring and it's definitely not what any other candidate talks about. But it's so important. But it's so important. And we can like say, all right, we have Park Row here. How do we keep Federal Plaza there? Because it's not going to move. But how do we redesign the rest of the space that's not being used for community benefit? Um, whether that's making it beautiful like a park or making sure that our small businesses are surviving and thriving by directing tourists to go to that area. Do you think you can make it happen? If, if... I'm going to try. Well, there's, enough, there's things I want to do before that. Like, I, I really want to pass this Chinatown working group. Like, if someone says, you know how they always ask the president, what are you going to do your first 100 days? Mm-hmm. Like, my first 10 days is kickstarting this rezoning policy to make sure that we can preserve the neighborhood. That's my first priority. In Chinatown? Chinatown, Lower East Side. It actually encompasses a lot of the Lower East Side as okay. well. Uh, so that's my number one plan. Everyone, When anyone tells, talks to me, whether it's a union, a uh, local street vendor, I'm like, let me tell you about the Chinatown Working Group plan. Uh, so that's my first priority. Second priority is making sure that our, our seniors are taken care of, children's are taken care of out of this pandemic. A lot of them are isolated. We got to make sure that people get the care and the funding they need. And so that's working with like nonprofits that we all grew up with, making sure that they have the funding, uh, the resources and the infrastructure in place to care for people. Because we don't know this people's mindset coming out of this. Right. We won't know for years. But then third is envisioning what we can do in the rest of lower Manhattan. Like whether it's like like one idea, I want to close car traffic in FIDI because the streets are so narrow. Once you're in traffic there, you're stuck for hours. It causes massive air pollution. Why don't we just cut it off and make it just a walkable neighborhood? Um, and it has the opportunity for that because you have the FDR and the West Side West Highway Island. coming into that, right? And it's like those small streets like Stone Street, like Ann Street, Cliff you know, Street. Like those should be closed off to cars. And how do we redesign those streets so we can have more outside dining, a more better lived experience in that That area. would be pretty dope. Yeah. In terms of the experience, because they got some really great restaurants down there, mm-hmm. bars, and I know uh, there's so many companies down there, whether it's uh, small companies that are in a WeWork type of setup, yeah. or you got these uh, large financial institutions down there, hence Fight Eye. Yeah. Um, and now tech companies. So, yeah. During happy hour or when everyone gets off of lunch, I mean, the the energy, because I used to work in that area, I had clients down there and just the energy down there during happy hour or during lunch when I used to have it with a few of my clients, it was pretty amazing. And if it's set up like that during like a spring, summer, fall type, oh, yeah. Well, I might get me a place down there. <laughs> I mean, you get a nice view of the, the, yeah, no, that's the river pretty too. Dope. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. I like that. That that's, I like a lot of the ideas you're pushing, and um, I mean, if you can really do all that, then, damn it! I yeah. mean, wow, 
That's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, um, just listening to all your ideas, it it, it really uh, speaks to, I mean, for me personally, it speaks to that you're a community first. Like you're looking at the minority groups, uh, the ethnic groups within those communities and focus on that, making sure that this is preserved and then how do we continue to preserve these communities because they are the backbone of District 1. Yeah. You know, people come, like you said, you mentioned, people come to, to LES, hang out, Chinatown hang out, and there's so yeah. many, and they're, and during this time, this is the hardest for the minority communities as well. Right. Exactly. So. And people come, yeah, exactly, they, they go to LES, not just because of Chinatown and Little Italy, because mm. no. of just LES itself, the nature, the history, they look at, they want to look at the buildings, and they have so many great restaurants, so many good yeah. eats, I mean, this... We're in a foodie culture yeah. down here, and the bars. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just a, what a lively, great scene. I, I remember uh, about a few years ago, man. I just spent my whole summer down here, you know, because I, I when I was living in Queens, because uh, I used to live. For those of you that don't know, I used to live in LES, but it wasn't like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I guess I finished the whole college thing, and then I came back home, and I, I moved out to Queens. It was just way more affordable and. Man, I was like, this place, why wasn't it like this before? Like, this is amazing. And I literally just spent my whole summer here just to get it out my system. You know, people love it, man. You know, I I speak to my Dominican, my Italian friends, my Asian friends, and from their parents to their kids. I mean, it's just a, a wide range, and we all have such interesting, similar, parallel stories. Even though our cultures are different, but then we get to share in our cultures, mm-hmm. and then great things happen. I know you can relate to that. Um, yeah, I, I think. Uh, I mean, is there anything you want to leave for you, for uh, anyone else? Oh, I do have one thing. All right. So, because <laughs> um, this recently came up, uh, your dad uh, owned the bodega. Yeah, he said so. Um, Andrew Yang recently. <laughs> oh, yeah. He got roasted on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because he took, and I saw the video where he said he was in a bodega. I was like, that is one hell of a nice bodega. <laughs> like, yeah. that looked, you know, like a, like a Met supermarket back in the day. I was like, yeah. that didn't look like a, you know, the tip. Like, I didn't see a cat on top of a, a bread loaf. I didn't, I didn't hear the boom, 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 yeah, boom, boom. You didn't see I music. The music. You yeah. didn't see Goya beans no, or, Goya or beans. a box of cereal. No. Yeah, you I know. didn't see my bravos and my tropical fantasy <laughs> yeah. and you know my onion rings. Yeah. Oh man, I, I blame it on his staff. You know, you gotta know not to post that, right? His staff. Oh man, his I, staff got to know better though. He, he has to hire locals. That's yeah, maybe that's maybe when know, I saw that, I was like, oh, Andrew Yang, no. I was like, I, no. I looked at it. I was like, did you just hire the same people? Of who you hired when you ran for president, oh, like you got to hire locals. You got to yeah. hire people that know New York City, because anyone, anyone would have been like, "That's not a bodega." Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, a lot of bodegas like, are kind of shifting the scene. But actually, I had a, I had I had a discussion with my girlfriend, and you know what constitutes a bodega? If it's in the cor- on the corner, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it has a cat in there. It was playing some sort of ethnic music, you know. Um, it has to be loud. It has to be loud. <laughs> and it has to be at the counter, some guy on the phone talking to his relative like halfway across the world. You know, that's... that's And a large selection of candies. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. You need like the bulletproof <laughs> Yeah, the bulletproof. You need like expired cereal that someone yeah. hasn't touched for like 10 years. Expired cold cuts. Like. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was on... Apparently, Andrew Yang was on the Lower East Side uh, today. 
Oh, he was. Uh, so maybe okay. trying to correct some of his wrongs, you know. <laughs> Doing some damage control. Exactly. Smart move. Do you think he's going to win? I think he has a shot. I mean, it's all about name recognition, right? Right. Like if you, he's got the brand. If you talk to anybody, you say, who do you know that's running for mayor? It's not a lot of people that can say any other candidate, right? Mm. But people, are, people know Andrew Yang. People generally like him because how he ran on a presidential race. And so he has a good chance, yeah. What do you think, Norm? I think he has a strong chance of winning. Yeah. Very strong chance, yeah. Um, just like like Chris said, I think it's name recognition. I think he's very popular with um, his ideas as well. He's very innovative. Um, I just don't know if you know he would be great in terms of representing, you know, all communities. Um, you know that whole thing with the bodega it's funny but honestly like is it is it tone deafness or is it just yeah. you know his 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 um uh his team wasn't aware i i just don't know and that that kind of it it, it was small but it kind of irked me oh did it yeah i mean like that's why i had the conversation with my my my, my girlfriend so you're the first you know. new yorker that uh well that I am aware of that it irked him. Everyone else kind of just yeah, made yeah, fun whatever, of him. Yeah. Like you look at Andrew Yang, you know he's not from the streets. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, you know he's not like a New York, New York. You yeah. know, like uh, what, what, is he from New York City? I uh, know. I think he's from upstate. Yeah, okay. He moved to New York City. Yeah, he lived in New York. You can just yeah. kind of get that vibe. He's he's very, you know, Andrew Yang. Like you could tell when someone's from the city. Yeah. You just have this energy mm-hmm. about them. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, it didn't bother me. Mm. It really. Because you understand what goes into this. You know, you got to yeah. sell yourself. You got to seem relatable. You got to do your, you know, I, your handshakes. I, I, know. Think, I think if this continues, if he has another major slip, let's say if he eats a pizza with a knife and fork. Okay. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Did he do that? He hasn't done that yet. He hasn't, but if he does do that, then you, then, you know. With a napkin over his yeah, head. I mean, you could, you, could oh, mess, you could mess up once, right? Like, oh, <laughs> silly error is yeah. still early in the race, but. If his team has that same tone depth and is putting him in, you know, that position to fail, then then people are going to have that. People are going to be like, this guy's not a New Yorker, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that would bother me more if he whipped out, if he went to a pizzeria yeah. and all of a sudden he put out like a, a, a fork and a knife. Oh, my God. And put yeah. a napkin on all over his coat. Yeah. Start patting down the grease. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm actually so going. So many violations at once. <laughs> so many violations. But I'm just thinking, uh, th- does it really matter if he if he's great for the city? Like, you know, Bloomberg. See, that's, that's yeah, exactly, right. that's, that's why that thinking, didn't bother me. Yeah, because I'm I think Andrew Yang could be pretty good for the city as far as what he's saying mm-hmm. so far during his campaign trail. If he's able to do uh, and implement some of these ideas, I think that'll be great for the city. Um, so I could look past him saying it's a bodega and yeah. it not being a, I could look past the whole two bedroom. Uh, that also didn't really, I mean, I could, I, obviously it's tone deaf. Yeah. Uh, but I could look past it if I'm looking at the bigger picture and I can see Andrew Yang killing it. Um, being uh, just moving New York forward, yeah, with yeah, his yeah. policies, yeah, yeah working yeah. with the city council members, yeah. members in conjunction, mm-hmm. supporting one another, yeah. being a very symbiotic relationship, because you, you guys are helping the community, and 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 just looking at that overall instead of helping the other outside interests to try to take money from New York yeah. or make money from New York by taking away from the community, so. 
if Andrew Yang is is for the communities of New York, then I'm riding with him. I'm excited to see what his policies are, right? Like he's going to bring a lot of innovative ideas that people aren't talking about. And, you know, I think that's how he seals it, right? If you can not only like be exciting, which he is, but if he can lay out a vision that people like Bloomberg, if you love him or you hate him, he laid out a vision and he implemented on that vision. And I think that's what we need to see from all these mayoral candidates to be like, this is the New York City of, you know, of the 2020s. Right. Mm-hmm. And if he could give us one that people are like, yeah, we need this, then I think he wins. That would be cool. That would be very cool. But what, what I do find interesting is that he had um, a couple of Asians on the campaign trail with him. Uh, both, I think, uh, was it a uh, famous Asian actor, Daniel Kim? Oh, Daniel Day Kim, yeah. yeah. Daniel Day Kim. And, uh, from 5-0. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he's not from New York, is he? No, I think he's, he's a West not, Coast no, guy, right? No, no, he was born in the Bronx, I think. Oh, oh he was he's born, a Bronx guy? Yeah. I know he went to school in Columbia. Yeah, um, I think he's from Soundview, actually. Oh, oh, for real? Yeah. Damn. At yeah. that time, it was pretty rough. Yeah. Good for Daniel. Damn, I didn't know that about him. Yeah. I got to wiki that. <laughs> Could have confirmed yeah. that later. And uh, and also the Fung brothers. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And and I know the Fung brothers. I think they're from Seattle. We had them on cool. uh, the show. And um, I actually played ball with them a few weeks ago. Nice. And uh, they, they are not from New York, but they've uh, been doing a lot within the community with um, everything, with their food reviews and, and giving back. So um, they've also been with Andrew Yang on the campaign trail. Is there, is there another candidate that, that you're looking at? Well, the, the way I see the race, there's like established candidates, right? Who have a track record, name recognition. That's definitely Scott Stringer and Eric Adams, right? People know who they are. They raised a lot of money, like $6 million, I think, a piece. Um, and then there's Ray McGuire, this guy who, a former executive at Citigroup, who just raised five million dollars like in two right. months? He was a name that stood. His name stood out prior to Andrew Yang going public. Exactly. So, and then you have celebrities like Maya Wiley, who's was always on MSNBC. And if you know you're that type of person that always has MSNBC in the background, mm-hmm. you probably know her. You probably like her. Uh, and then there's some, you know, there's some dark horses. I would say Diana Morales. She's like a true like progressive. But I don't know if she's going to have the infrastructure or the money to get her message across. Uh, but I think that's the race right now. And I think, and Andrew Yang, of course, right? Andrew yeah. Yang has to start up. People love him. He's already he, got momentum. He has an army of followers. He mm-hmm. does, the Yang gang. Yep. Yeah, yeah, they're out there. <laughs> they're out there. Uh, out there strong. And so I definitely think Andrew Yang's top three right now. And I would say sure. it's, you know, Scott, Eric, and, and, and Andrew. And then I'll put like Ray kind of like a distant fourth of like who will probably be the next man a few sleepers yeah in the group yeah yeah obama was a sleeper back yeah, exactly. in 2008 so exactly. he ended up killing it blue yeah. uh de blasio was a sleeper right that was the year we That's had right. anthony weiner we had uh uh john lou had the trial the you know yeah the right. counting thing mm-hmm. and then and christine quinn like yeah was fell apart at the end and de blasio was the dark horse that yeah, that one at the end of the day, too. right? So you never know with these things. That's true. You never know. So wait and see. Um, last thing before we let you go. Uh, other folks running against you for the city council, District 1. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to say? Anything you do different from them? Anything 
you want to put out there in because a lot of times people may be on a fence between you and another candidate mm-hmm. that's running is there anything you want to leave with them with yeah i think it's it's the track record right that it's what you do when no one's looking or when you're not running for office and when we look at the jail none of the other candidates was against the jail none of the other candidates mobilized the community educated the community spent nights and weekends trying to bring people's voices to the table. Same thing for the 85 Bowery tenants when they're being evicted. No other candidate was there. And you start looking at the track record of not only me, but what the community was able to do and just not see the other candidates there, uh, I think speaks volume, especially if you want a council person that's going to be there. You know, that's going to be there Friday night, 9 p.m. at a community meeting, right? Uh, on Sunday morning, Saturday mornings at a Tribeca Green Market, just talking to residents. Um, and I think that's what separates me. Like, A, I want to be there. I've been doing the work, but I also want to represent every corner of this district. Whether you live in a loft in Tribeca or you live in a, in a bedroom of a you know, two-bedroom in, in, in the Lower East Side. In a tenement building. In a tenement building. Yeah. And, and that's what I love about this, and I love that challenge, too. It's exciting. It's also a very crowded uh, uh, District 1 race, too, as well. There's like uh, seven other candidates. Uh, eight other candidates. Eight other candidates. Who's, wow. who's the closest person to you, you, you feel? Uh, well, uh, Margaret Chen has her chief of staff running, uh, Gigi Lee. So she has name recognition. She has mm-hmm. the power of the office, right? She's still mm-hmm. working for Margaret. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jenny Law as well. She, I heard of Jenny Law. I heard she, she probably has a good chance too. Yeah, she's still working for Corey Johnson. And so these people still have influence, right? Because mm-hmm. of the position they're still holding. And they, they didn't vote against the mega jail? They stayed neutral? Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. I did not know that. Well, I mean, if you're already in local politics uh, and the, the current sitting councilman, council person voted for it, I mean, I, I think uh, that speaks volumes. That's just crazy to yeah. me because if, if, if I'm from the area and you're trying to like do that. This is a slap to the face to the community. And it just tells me, do they really care about Do they the really play neutral? I, I, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, you can aware. go back. I, I, I can send you the length of no one testified no one showed up to community. It was death meeting. in politics if you did? Yeah. And it was wow. uh it was sad, I mean, like to see and yeah, but you know, I think it and that's the thing, the track record speaks for itself. So you were the only politician to step up for Chinatown when nobody no other politician, Asian or whatever, would played it neutral. Yeah, and 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 it was a hard position to take, right? And, and you're what, saying that they did that because it would have been career suicide for them? At that moment, probably, or they didn't want to disappoint someone, or they thought this was going to, it was a done deal. That's how they were pitching it, right? And if you're a career politician, if someone says it's a done deal, why well, try to, you know, stop it? Uh, and I think that's the difference. Well, I, I can't, I can't fact check everything because I don't, I mean, in time, but yeah. that's hard to believe. That's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's out there. I mean, none of this has was done. Everything one hundred percent facts. Yeah, no spinning. Yeah, it was, and it was like, you know, you could, you guys know Jan. Me, he's the one that co-founded with me NUBC. Henry Lee came to our marches, helped us fundraise. Tai Ma, you know, we he donated a lot of money to our initiative, um, and yeah, and, and there, it took activists to step up to to make a difference in our neighborhood. All right, wow. Chris, um, hey, 
really hope you follow through on everything you're saying if you yeah. take office and um wish you the best and thank you for coming on thank you man this is lucky boys we out Thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts for the rest of our episodes.